and welcome to Rare Book School 1987, back in residence after an interesting but difficult week last week, when on Monday morning we were greeted by a total power failure in this building, which sent us into exile until Thursday morning. There are chairs up in front. Please come help yourself. Would you turn that air conditioner off? Thanks very much. So, things should be much easier this week. There will be a reception immediately following this lecture in room 523, known as the throne room. There will be another evening lecture tomorrow night at 6 o'clock in which Wilman Spawn, formerly conservator at the American Philosophical Society in Philadelphia and lately curator of bookbindings at Bryn Mawr College, will be speaking on the identification of American bookbindings. There will also be public showings of, of films and videotapes on Wednesday and Thursday of this week, and there will be evening lectures or films and videotapes on Monday through Thursday next week and the week after next as well. So uh, we hope to see all of you here, especially those in the neighborhood, as often as possible. Having spent a fair amount of my life, I sometimes think, listening to bad lectures, I have increasingly gotten to the habit of inviting people to lecture before the Friends of the Book Arts Press and Rare Book School on a subject on which I have heard them, <laughs> preferably the same lecture. I thus have considerable enthusiasm for the lecture that we present tonight because Michael Warner gave it at the American Antiquarian Society in mid-June. I recommend it to your attention, Michael Warner from Northwestern University. Thank you. The, uh, the task that I've undertaken in this talk is to outline some recent developments in literary studies in order to suggest the ways in which literary studies and the history of the book might have entered into a new relation. Let me begin with a brief and schematic history of literary studies in this country. My reason for doing so is that the various ways in which literary critics are now turning to the history of the book indicate a very important shift in the field and one that is in part playing out long-standing patterns in the discipline's history. When English departments were founded in American colleges and universities, mostly in the last quarter of the 19th century, they were really departments of English language and literature. For many years before that, colleges had had somebody, usually the professor of rhetoric and oratory, whose job included the task of introducing boys to the golden passages of Shakespeare and the poets. Literary studies had not been conducted in any systematic way, and criticism meant being able to tell the good bits from the bad bits. You did it as part of being a gentleman. The founding of English departments, however, brought about quite a different sort of business and earned a very hostile reception from the rhetoric and oratory people. The new English scholars were philologists. Nowadays, we would call them linguists. Their training was in the historical and comparative study of languages. Though, as you no doubt know, philologists also developed, for the first time, a systematic bibliographic criticism. Their really innovative character lay in the fact that they were trained at all. The influx of philology marked the professionalization of literary studies. To be a rhetoric and oratory critic you only had to know the classics, have a pretty way of talking, and dabble in poetry. And that isn't much of an exaggeration because the 
exemplars in this role were the men who succeeded each other in the Boylston Chair of Rhetoric and Oratory at Harvard, uh, Tickner, Longfellow, and Lowell. To be a philologist, on the other hand, you had to go to graduate school, something that at first only existed in Germany. In the 1870s and 1880s, Americans were going to Germany and coming back as philologists in droves. And when they got back, they were helping to set up the new graduate programs in American universities. The graduate programs they were setting up, not only in old institutions like Harvard, uh, but in all of those new schools like Hopkins, Cornell, and Chicago, were, of course, graduate programs in philology. They were where you went to learn about the great vowel shift. But the way you illustrated the great vowel shift was, was by reading the text that gave evidence of it. And this is where literature began to come in. Sometime in the 1880s, the professionalizing philologists began to realize that their lab experiments had a bigger appeal than their science. By offering not just the golden passages of the bard, but an enormous historical range of the texts that they were busily editing and reprinting, they were in a position to lay claim to the systematic study of literature. And that is what they did. Literature, obviously, meant something rather broader for these enterprising philologists than it did for the high culture of the rhetoric and oratory people. It meant essentially the written archive, though in the years that followed, the philologists turned critics learned to sustain an ambiguity in their use of the word that is with us to the present. Criticism also was a different practice for the philologists. It is from this period that we can date the project of specialized interpretation, in which people began to debate not just whether Browning was really a major poet, but rather questions like, in what situations does Milton use Latinate syntax? And what were the sources for A Winter's Tale? For the philologists, an enormous amount of historical, biographical, bibliographical, and linguistic information was necessary for criticism. Literary criticism became institutionalized in this essentially philo philological mode, though of course the university critics also had to make concessions to the genteel discourse of judicious criticism. The backlash against philology, and with it, against history, came mainly in the 1940s in a movement called the New Criticism. Now, the new criticism almost certainly represents the version of literary study that you yourselves have been educated in. In many ways, it was designed for classroom teaching, and it dominates our ed educational institutions at every level. Its hallmark was and is close reading, careful scrutiny of the work itself. Philology, bibliography, history, and biography, which had been the task of a critical science, became only a background for the task of criticism which was an unmediated confrontation with the text. New criticism developed very subtle and sophisticated techniques of reading to stand in place of the philological apparatus. And it became possible to talk about ironies, ambiguities, imagery patterns, narrative devices, thematic coherence, and the like. All of these techniques of reading have at their core a task of appreciation for authorial control. What they are made to find is a well-crafted work of art. This means not only that people have gotten to be pretty good at finding well-crafted works of art wherever they can find ironic ambiguities and thematic coherence, which is just about anywhere if you're clever, but also that something strongly resembling the ideals of rhetoric and oratory criticism has crept back into literary study. Where the philologist's governing ideal was historical comprehension of the archive, the new critic's governing ideal was the appreciation of works of art. Part of the program of close reading was the assumption that literary qualities can be apprehended immediately, 
and if literary qualities can be apprehended immediately, it follows that they are timeless and universal. And because of this assumption, although the old evaluative language of the genteel critics was muted, the task of identifying the good bits had come once again to define the critic. One result was the clarification of a literary canon. If you examine anthologies of American literature, for example, you will find that those of the 1920s include a vast range of samples, usually grouped historically and geographically, while those of the new criticism gradually do away with schools and regions, winnowing down the samples to the great authors, great authors being those whose works display most intensively the timeless and universal values of literature. One very influential anthology presented American literature as the work of eight, count them, eight authors. Even today, the most common anthologies arrange their selections only by birth date, and thus implicitly regard other historical and cultural information as no more than background. Part of the ongoing appeal of this way of doing things, of course, is that it's easy to handle in the classroom. But the classroom in question can no longer be that of a course in the history of the book. Of course, I exaggerate the clarity of this shift, as some of the older ways of doing things persisted, particularly in American studies, which always maintained a historical interest as a way of distinguishing itself from the English canon. And some projects in criticism, like the history of the rise of the novel, or like Marx's criticism, have always had an interest in addressing the history of the book. But the schematic history I've given is a way of suggesting that doing so has not, in general, been seen as desirable for students of literature. From genteel culture to philology to new criticism, then, we arrive at something like the present. And as you may have guessed from the context of this talk, current shifts in literary studies have returned historical and cultural issues to the center of discussion in a way that had been made impossible by new criticism's reaction against philology. The turn away from new criticism is extraordinarily complicated and overdetermined, and I'll not be able to do justice to it here, since I only want to suggest how it's created an interest, an interest in the history of the book. So I'll confine myself to two critiques of new criticism, one of its theory of interpretation and one of its theory of value. They're related, and they're jointly motivating some very lively scholarship in literary history. I'll offer examples from two movements, one to illustrate each critique. Following the critique of the new critical theory of interpretation, there is now a much debated movement called the new historicism, while the critique of value has been picked up most astutely in feminist criticism. The theory of interpretation has itself been such an explosive field that I won't even name its relevant figures, much less explain how it comes about that movements as different as continental language philosophy and American neo-pragmatism converge in their critique of new critical assumptions. So I'll summarize here an American version of the debate, though in an ideal world, a historian of the book would also be interested in the communications theory of Jürgen Habermas or the grammatology of Jacques Derrida. In this broad range of theoretical developments, one thing has been agreed upon by the newer generation. No one apprehends a text immediately. Now, this new critical assumption could always be protected by reservations. For example, the reader has to be properly trained before he is competent to read closely. But the fundamental idea is that a determinate meaning is inherent in any text. This is true even if that meaning is an ambiguity, in fact, especially then, because your task in the face of an ambiguity is to recognize that the tension is itself a determinate aspect of craft and intention. Because an authoritative and determinate meaning is seen as inhering in the text, any competent speaker of the language should be able to elaborate it by paying close enough attention. Elaborating a meaning may be complicated. In 
fact, it had better be, or criticism would have no job. But there is a guarantee in advance that you can do it, and that you can do it right by an unmediated encounter with the text. Interpretive theory, whether post-structuralist or Wittgensteinian or neo-pragmatist, has shown that this picture of interpretation is a myth. Language does not come with an inherent meaning and cannot be immediately apprehended. This is not to say that it cannot be apprehended, as the popular press's cartoon version of deconstruction would seem to imply, but that the apprehension of meaning is always mediated. Interpretation always takes place in action and in a context, and it is the contextual act of interpreting, including the assumptions and purposes of that interpretation, that determines the meaning of the text. Let's take as an example the first sentence from Moby Dick. I don't think that any readers of Moby Dick are exactly bewildered by Call Me Ishmael. It seems rather plain and straightforward, and it's easy enough to do a close reading of it. Its tone, the relation between reader and speaker, the ambiguity suggested by it, and so on. But nothing naturally inherent in the text produces these meanings, as will be clear the moment you consider what it would mean if you heard it in another context. If, for example, you were being introduced to a friendly person whose name were Ishmael, or if you were a security guard on a day when Call Me Ishmael had been declared the password, or if you were playing Jeopardy and it showed up under the category of opening lines. In any one of these contexts, the sentence has a meaning, and in most cases a plain meaning, but the meaning is a function of shared assumptions, expectations, and purposes. When you pick up a copy of Moby Dick, in that very act, you establish a cultural context that will inform your reading. And the cultural context is a highly specific one, requiring not only literacy, but familiarity with the cultural meaning of books, novel consumption, education, taste, biblical allusion, and so on. This dimension of culture, according to our newer theories of interpretation, is not just the background of a text that can be read independently of it. Insofar as it always mediates meaning, it is the text. Because interpretive assumptions and purposes are not just the features of individuals, but of communities, interpretation is always regulated for the individual. And because some of the communities defined by assumptions are very broad, say, for example, the West, some features of interpretation are very stable. But they are not in principle so, and they are not immediately so. Any text transferred to a sufficiently different interpretive context would have a different meaning. And there is no transcendental privilege for an original context, which anyway, by definition, could not be entirely or purely apprehended from some other context. Now, it's worth repeating that the newer critiques of interpretation do not deny meaning and do not prevent interpretation. What they do is to extend the frame of reference to include the interpreter, the situation, and the culture as the site of meaning. The newer theories, in other words, have redirected attention away from the individual interpreter and the individual author toward the context of meaning that make interpreting or authoring possible. One of the main results has been an interest in what is called the politics of interpretation. By that phrase is understood the collective purposes and presuppositions which generate meaning in any given context. The appeal of the phrase lies partly in the post-imperial setting in which the critique of interpretation has been developed. It was realized that one of the reasons Westerners had such a confidence in the universality of meaning was that they were accustomed to imposing their interpretive categories on other cultures. But it has also allowed us to realize that the cultural context of meaning is never uniform or monolithic, 
and since people's purposes and assumptions could also be described as their interests, meaning is always the site of a social struggle. Initially a theoretical argument about the mediation of meaning by presupposition and action, the polemic has made issues of cultural politics central to interpretation. Thus historical inquiry has returned as a feature of literary studies, though history is no longer a background, but now a primary dimension of meanings and texts. For that reason, the same theoretical arguments that have been associated with post-structuralism and deconstruction have also led to what is now known as the new historicism, and thus to a strong interest in the history of the book. New historicism is a label that historians don't like very much, uh, but nobody's asking the historians. Uh, the, the historians understand something entirely different by, his, by historicism, so uh, they're thrown for a loop by the term. Uh, the people the new historicists are reacting against are the new critics, and historicism seems an important term for that purpose because it emphasizes that meaning is established in concrete historical situations and ought not to be abstracted as though it didn't matter who was speaking or when or where or why. So if the historicism in the new historicism is to distinguish it from the new critics and their idea that a text means what it means regardless of what your cultural situation is, the new in new historicism is to distinguish it from the somewhat dreary and encyclopedic historical work that the philologists used to do. And this latter distinction is no less, no less important than the first, because while critics have realized on one hand that language and the symbolic are never essential and timeless but always contingent on local affairs, on the other hand, they have realized that cultural politics are always symbolic. New historicism has a motto, the text is historical and history is textual. The first part means that meaning does not transcend context but is produced within it. The second part means that human actions and institutions and relations, while certainly hard facts, are not hard facts as distinct from language. They are themselves symbolic representations, though this is not to say, as many old historicists might conclude, that they are not real. Take, for example, the artifact, the physical book, in which you encounter Call Me Ishmael. Since it is a thing, you might think that it is fundamentally different from the language you read in it. But as we know, its existence as a thing is already meaningful. In the appropriate situation, let us say, it possesses bookness, where bookness gives it meaning within practices of literacy, technologies of writing and printing and binding, the politics of education and information, distribu distributions of economic wealth and cultural wealth, divisions of labor and leisure time, and so on. So if a conflict arose over what Call Me Ishmael meant, and you were to take your copy in hand and wave it in the air as though to call attention to its material existence, you would already be doing something with a very complex symbolic charge, something in fact just as complex and just as meaningful as the sentence Call Me Ishmael. Just so, when the Gloucestershire heretic James Bainham waved Tyndall's printed New Testament in the air in defiance of the public tribunal that condemned him to death in 1531, both his action and the artifact in his hand, indeed the sentence of death as well, were dense and powerful texts. The example shows that interpretation of texts, in this case of the New Testament, is situated in political relations that themselves exist by means of interpretation. The example, moreover, is an especially convenient one for me because it comes from a work that can be regarded as the watershed of the new historicism, 
Stephen Greenblatt's Renaissance Self-Fashioning, first published in 1980 and enjoying an ever-widening impact in departments of literary studies. You will see its relevance to the history of the book when I tell you that the chapter about Tyndale's translation of the New Testament is titled, The Word of God in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction. Here's a sample of Greenblatt's analysis. Only those who had been brought up to think of the Bible as a Latin work could experience the full shock of the voice of God speaking to them in English from its pages. Add to this the threat of persecution, and the effect must have seemed overpowering, almost irresistible. This is surely one of the reasons why, during a brief period, Protestantism in England could survive and spread without any significant institutional framework, on the force of the word. When Tyndale writes of arming oneself with the syllables of scripture, or Bainham speaks of his fear that this word of God pointing to the book in his hand would damn him, we must take them at very close to the literal meaning. The printed English New Testament is, above all, a form of power. It is invested with the ability to control, guide, discipline, console, exalt, and punish that the church had arrogated to itself for centuries. And lest this be thought inflated rhetoric, let us recall that James Bainham simply could not live with the pain of what he took to be his betrayal of the book. He preferred death. Bainham, we might say, was doing close reading. But he wasn't coming up with the same results as the new critics because he wasn't in the same culture or political situation. Because Greenblatt takes that fact as the condition of all interpretation, he also doesn't regard his own examination of the history of printing as mere background. The new historicism advances this sort of historical business as a normal way for literary critics to interpret texts. In the process, it advances this sort of critical interpretation as a normal way of doing history. The printed testament, Greenblatt suggests, was saturated with meaning, and the meaning it was saturated with was a complicated set of political relations and cultural motives. So its meaning, we might say, saturated not only with what was recognized as its text, but also its existence as a book, at its possession, the acts of printing it, reading it, pointing to it, suppressing it, and dying for it. Greenblatt uses the phrase cultural poetics to describe what the new historicism studies. And he means by it not only that poetics are cultural, but also that culture is at every point a dense fabric of symbolic practice and interpretation. Implicit then in the new historicist scholarship is a very powerful challenge for the history of the book. For example, it would challenge the assumption made by many historians that printing is not just a, a material technology or a hard fact, but something that you could point to as having a brute existence outside the symbolic order. The entirely non-symbolic character of printing seems important to some historians of printing for two reasons. First, it guarantees that they have a single object of study despite vast and frequent changes in the world of culture. And second, it allows them to trace the effects of print within culture without doing cultural history. And I'm thinking here of a broadly McLuhanite school of historians um, exemplified by Elizabeth Eisenstein. Uh, and, uh, and now influential in some kinds of literary criticism, such as the uh, recent book by Alvin Kernan on Samuel Johnson. Now, all of this strikes me as very problematic. To begin with, I don't see how one could define printing so as to separate it from the historically contingent domain of culture. As you, of all people, know best, not all printing is done with a press or with ink or on paper or with movable type or even by the method of impression. 
No hard fact of technology determines what will count as printing when we talk about printing. Of course, we know what we mean when we talk about printing, but we know that because we're in a tradition. We have a historical vocabulary of purposes and concepts that gives identity to printing and meaning meaningfully distinguishes for us between books that have been impressed with types and those that have been impressed with pens. That tradition has undergone some important changes. For example, whereas printing was initially another way of reproducing in quantity books that were already being reproduced in quantity, at a certain point, printing came to be specially defined as publication, now with the sense in opposition to manuscript circulation. Later, publication in this, in this new sense would take on a special political meaning involving a new way of defining the public. These changes were not dictated by any feature of the technology, but they did change our fundamental perceptions of the technology. It is because publication is a political condition of utterance that we meaningfully distinguish between books impressed by types and those impressed by pens, where we do not make the same kind of distinction between those impressed by plates and those sprayed by lasers. The history of printing, in short, cannot even define its subject properly without asking about the history of things like the public or the political conditions of utterance. To ask what it meant to publish and what it meant to identify printing as publishing would be a task characteristic of new historicist literary history. Now, as had been the case with the philological criticism following genteel criticism, the new historicism opens up an enormous range for interpretation beyond the canonized authors. And as I've been suggesting, the opening of that range has to do largely with our picture of interpretation and its relation to culture. But the move beyond close reading is also a move beyond the canonized authors. And we thus have to consider a second kind of critique against the new, the new criticism, this time of its theory of value. You will remember that since the central assumption of new critical close reading is that you can apprehend a text without the mediation of presuppositions and social relations, it necessarily follows that the qualities and values of literature are timeless and universal. Now, the second half of this assumption is drawing as much criticism as the first. People noticed a basic problem. Although the qualities and values of literature were said to be timeless and universal, the literary canon somehow happened to be white, male, Western, and in the case of American literature, New England middle class. How had this happened? After some very problematic efforts to locate black, female, or working class writers whose works exhibited the timeless and universal values, critics began to realize that the problem was that assumption about value. In a landmark theoretical essay called Contingencies of Value, Barbara Hernstein Smith demonstrated that value, like meaning, depends on situations of use, social relations, cultural structures of significance, and the like. Estimable cultures across the world, she reminds us, have well-developed systems of value and meaning that have no place whatsoever for the categories assumed by new criticism to be universal. For these peoples, she writes, other, ver other verbal artifacts, not necessarily works of literature or even texts, and other objects and events, not necessarily works of art or even artifacts, have performed and do perform the various functions that Homer, Dante, and Shakespeare perform for us. The literary canon, it follows, 
is the product not of an essential, natural, transcendental value, but of a historically specific cultural tradition. Its values are indeed intrinsic to its text, but only when they are read within the appropriate cultural setting. Like the critique of meaning, the critique of value has some radical implications for how we regard the, social, the symbolic character of human relations. It cuts against the familiar distinction between rhetoric and reality, because in Smith's words, what we speak of as a subject's needs, interests, and purposes are not only always changing, and it may be noted here that a subject's self or that on behalf of which he or she may be said to act with self-interest is also variable, being multiply reconstituted in terms of different roles and relationships, but they are also not altogether independent of or prior to the entities that satisfy or implement them. If we take the example of the, that's the end of the quote, if we take the example of the Gothic novel, Smith's argument would be that the production and consumption of Gothic novels is also part of the production of the subjects whose desires will be met there, met both in the sense of encountered and satisfied. The history of books is part of the history of subjects. That aside, two main kinds of projects have followed from the critique of literary value. First, critics have begun the attempt to reconstruct other cultural determinations of value, lost traditions or marginalized traditions or other social perspectives on the existing canon. This effort has given new prominence to comparative literary studies influenced by anthropological methods, but it has also given birth to reconstructions of other contexts of value within our own society's history. And nobody has shown this better than a new generation of feminist critics, such as Janice Radway, Lynn Wardley, Amy Kaplan, Lauren Berlant, Tanya Modleski, Kathy Davidson, and Gillian Brown, to name only a few who are working in American literature. In various ways, these critics are developing an understanding of women's uses for texts and for the cultural valuations implicit in those uses. A second related project has been to analyze the making of our canonical tradition, given our new realization that it did not naturally make itself. Recall, for example, that anthology of American literature that consisted of eight major authors. All eight were white middle-class men. What is the history behind the promotion of eight white middle-class men to universal status? How did those eight get institutionalized? One recent study of the question can be found in Richard Broadhead's new book, The School of Hawthorne, in which he considers such questions as the 19th century publish industry, uh, Hawthorne's relation to his publisher, and to other writers. The subject opens narratives of American literary history completely different from that found in the Norton Anthology headnotes. To a large 19th century audience, for example, Hawthorne was not primarily the author of Rappuccini's Daughter, but rather of a rill from the town pump. A rill from the town pump, which first appeared anonymously and was believed to have been written by a woman, was probably the most anthologized piece of American fiction in the 19th century. Odds are that you have never heard of it. That's because it was written in the sentimental mode of the women's novel, and because subsequently Hawthorne, Fields, and well-connected followers like Henry James succeeded in re-characterizing Hawthorne as an author. In one letter to Hawthorne, Fields, his publisher, wrote that he has an intention of, I quote, manufacturing you into a personage. Part of that meant uh, making Hawthorne write stories that would no longer be taken as the stories produced by a woman. In conceiving of the study of the institutionalization of Hawthorne, Broadhead is following Jane Tompkins' lively and controversial book, Sensational Designs. 
Tompkins's book is a convenient example not only because it has been hotly debated and broadly influential, but also because it combines the two projects that stem from the critique of value. In one chapter, Masterpiece Theater, The Making of Hawthorne's Reputation, she considers the affiliations in the publishing, reviewing, and educational worlds that have winnowed, interpreted, and preserved Hawthorne's work as canonical. At the same time, in chapters on Uncle Tom's Cabin and on Susan Warner's best-selling Wide, Wide World, Tompkins argues that these books, far from being the drivel that Hawthorne declared them to be, were in the cultural world of their female authorship, uh, sorry, in their female readership, valuable texts. You'll remember that Hawthorne refers to this group of best-selling women authors as that damned mob of scribbling women. The structures of meaning that make these novels worthwhile, in Tompkins' view, have not been apparent to the male institutions of literary criticism because they were structures of meaning specific to the cultural position of mid-19th century evangelical women. The revaluation of the sentimental novel by Tompkins and others has created several kinds of interest in the history of the book. First of all, the movement has returned our attention potentially to any cultural discourse, even unthinkably enough bestsellers. Janice Radway, for example, has written a lengthy and influential study of Harlequin romances. Second, since this branch of feminist criticism reappraises the sentimental women's novel by considering its cultural context, ostensibly non-literary discourses become relevant and are seen to be informed by the same symbolic structures of value. In the case of Tompkins's book, for example, the wide, wide world is seen as exhibiting the same patterns of significance and value, even the same narratives and tropes, as the evangelical Protestant tracts of the American tract society. The techniques of reading that are appropriate to Warner's novel and that make it valuable, says Tompkins, are also appropriate to these tracts and make them objects of value and significance. Now, the tracts were made in huge numbers for a highly organized kind of distribution. Tompkins suggests that, as textual objects, the tracts and their system of distribution articulated the evangelical community that would disseminate them. Many of the tracts, moreover, both represent the community of women that will distribute them and represent the relation between that evangelical community and the society as a whole. The printing of these tracts, their subsidization, their reading, and their distribution can thus be seen as a form of political organization. Stephen Greenblatt made a similar point about the printed New Testament, and uh, you can see also versions of the argument by Raymond Williams about newspapers or by Benedict Anderson for novels in general. And given Tompkins's reading of the sentimental novel, we can see that the tracts are closely related to the popular novel, not only because much of the same language and figurative rhetoric carries over from one discourse to the other, but more importantly because both were ways of articulating a world for Protestant women. Readers of Uncle Tom's Cabin, for example, will no doubt recall the death scene of Little Eva. In the past, when a literary critic has wanted to show that Stowe's novel was maudlin trash, he had only to cite the formulaic sentimentalism of that scene. And it is, in a sense, formulaic, because the scene of the, dying and the angelic dying child can be found in many of the American Tract Society's publications and in many of the earlier sentimental novels. But all literature depends on generic conventions for intelligibility, and indeed, perception itself depends on convention. Uh, Tompkins, for example, produces an 1829 report written by some of the New York City Tract Society visitors, their field workers, following their visit to a house. And what they report having seen, that is, in fact, as perception, 
is nothing less than a version of the death scene of Little Eva. They use the same language and the same narrative that Stowe and other sentimental novelists would later use, though they were not writing fiction so much as reporting the reality of their perceptions. So the real charge against novels like Uncle Tom's Cabin is not that they're conventional, but, th but that they're sentimental. The reader is expected to weep. Consider the following passage, which occurs just after Eliza and her child have escaped across the ice flows and sought shelter in the kitchen of Senator Byrd. I'm assuming that most of you have a familiarity of some kind with Uncle Tom's Cabin. This is one of its most famous scenes. Uh, this is the scene uh, uh, just after that, when uh, Eliza has sought refuge in the home of Senator Byrd, and his wife, Mrs. Byrd, goes to uh, her closet uh, um, after she's realized that the little boy that Eliza has carried out of slave territory has no clothes for his long journey ahead. His wife, Mrs. Byrd, one of whose children has died not long before, opened the little bedroom door adjoining her room and, taking the candle, set it down on the top of a bureau there. Then, from a small recess, she took a key and put it thoughtfully in the lock of a drawer and made a sudden pause, while two boys, who, boy-like, had followed close on her heels, stood looking with silent, significant glances at their mother. And, oh, mother that reads this, has there never been in your house a drawer or a closet the opening of which has been to you like the opening again of a little grave? Ah, happy mother that you are, if it has not been so. To the traditional critic, little more need be said. That isn't how literature works. But sympathetic weeping is a more complicated and powerful cultural act than the traditional view allows. Talk about over-determination. The tear welling up in the female reader's eye is simultaneously, one, an articulation of the feminine in the cultural system of mid-19th century America, two, an articulation of suffering, including but not limited to the suffering of women in patriarchy, three, an expression of the contradictions of maternity in a culture that was characterized both by affective familial relations and by high infant mortality, four, an invocation of a Christian rhetoric of redemption, five, the paradigmatic form of political relation in a powerful Republican liberal tradition exemplified by Rousseau and popularized in America, ironically, by the discourse against novel reading, and six, a relation of reader to text. So a woman who weeps over her novel is by that very act which is determined for her as involuntary, linking her identity as a woman with her experience of suffering in a redemptive social vision built into the consumption of print. Particular narratives, such as that of Little Eva's death, organize, occasion, and add further dimensions of meaning to the tears shed upon their pages. In this case, for example, Stowe's text thematizes the gender coding of its sentimentalism with the detail of the onlooking boy-like boys. The chapter from, uh, in which this passage occurs is called In Which It Appears That a Senator Is But a Man. Further, the narrative situation in which Mrs. Byrd is using the clothes of her dead child to clothe Eliza's living child dramatically links the interior suffering of Mrs. Byrd with a norm of collective care. The great power of Stowe's novel rests in part on her continually renewed effort to articulate in this way the private sympathetic relation of reader to sentimental text with a prescriptive norm about social relations. Mrs. Byrd is already on her way to provide material care 
when the narrative provides its occasion for private sympathy. That is why the reference to the reader as a mother is important. You remember that, ah, reader, ah, mother that reads this. It's also not entirely unusual in the sentimental novel. In Fanny Fern's uh, Ruth Hall, for example, we read, Ruth broke the seal of the second letter. It was in a delicate, beautiful female hand, just such a one as you, dear reader, might trace, whose sweet, soft eyes and long, drooping tresses are now bending over this page. Through such scenes and such allusions, readers of these novels not only learn to imagine themselves and their interior experience in the terms of the novel's discourse, but also learn to imagine other readers in relation to themselves, specifically other women readers. We could note other important details of the passage that invest sympathetic reading with local meaning. The whole drama, for example, revolves around a symbolic organization of space as an experience of privacy. It thus calls on a semiotic of the closet, which simultaneously expresses the privacy of reading, the space of 19th century women's labor, and the power of religion. Um, and although this reading that I'm offering you isn't Tompkins's, Tompkins does make much of the last point. She quotes the directions of the New York City Tract Society to its tract visitors in 1829, which goes like this. Be much in prayer. Endeavor to feel habitually and deeply that all your efforts will be in vain unless accompanied by the Holy Ghost. And this blessing you can expect only in answer to prayer. Pray, therefore, without ceasing. Go from your closet to your work, and from your work return again to your closet. Each of these novels and each of these scenes adds to a collective self-representation of its female readership that is, in the deepest sense, political, even when it is not self-consciously so. For that reason, all the exaltation that Robert Darnton displays over the inky pressman's thumbprint in the Encyclopédie could not match my exaltation if I could find a salty tear stain in a copy of Uncle Tom's Cabin. <laughs> to put the point differently, I could say that the history of the book or the history of American literature needs to consider the meaning of closets, the politics of weeping, and the history of sympathy. Obviously, any historian of American literature who considered such things would be working with a sense of the term literature that is very different from the one that organizes most English department curricula. But it has been remarked in many quarters, especially in Gerald Graff's incisive new book on literary study in America, that the force of change in English departments is leading toward the historical study of culture and an appropriately broad sense of literature. It would not be the first time that teachers of literature considered their duties so broadly, nor would it be the first time that their self-understanding led them to bibliographic scholarship, though it's ironic that such a turn of events should come now when nearly every graduate program in English has recently dropped its required course in bibliographic method. That, however, is a different subject, and more ironic still, since the greatest investment in bibliographic scholarship came in the effort by the Center for Editions of American Authors to purify texts of the major authors for their new critical close reading. It might be noted that literature, like culture, contains an important ambiguity. Literature is at once the world of letters and the special body of texts, just as culture denotes both the symbolic order of any society and a distinctive canonical tradition in Western philosophy and art. In the newer kinds of work, these ambiguities are developed and clarified. People commonly separate the two meanings by referring either to discourses when they intend the general context of communication in a society, 
or to traditions when they intend the construction of value in a culture's self-representation. It would be a mistake to conclude from the breadth of the newer conception of literary studies that critics are lapsing either into mere fact-gathering or into a shapeless relativism. And given the new historicism's premium on interpretation, the former should be obvious. The critique of value, however, has occasioned the charge of valueless relativism from some quarters, though I think this represents a misunderstanding. Uh, they're prestigious quarters, too, I might add. Uh, and they, of course, everyone knows that, that such a position is associated with the Secretary of Education. The objection is familiar enough. People who spend so much attention on the consumption of sentimental novels are neglecting the great works and are contributing to the failure of American universities to cultivate values. There are several reasons why I do not think that this objection will finally hold much force with literary critics. First, the critique of value itself accounts for the continuing importance of the canonical writers. The canon articulates the same culture that conditions ourselves. It is to be expected that we will continue to find valuable expression and satisfaction there. As for the so-called failure to cultivate values, the problem is who is going to say which values those are. We have a complex culture with conflicting values, and there is little use in pretending that a single canonical tradition speaks for everybody. This is a, a, one of the ironies of, of uh, Secretary Bennett's proposal that we return to a single canon of great books, since included in his canon are the very authors who begin the tradition of skepticism that he laments, people like Nietzsche and uh, Hume and Marx. But an even more powerful answer can be given to the objection of relativism, and one that says a great deal about emerging work in literary studies. What the traditionalist objection misses is that the critical attempt to reconstruct alternative systems of value is itself the expression of a value. It is not yet clearly understood by the profession, and my saying this as much, is as much a plea as an observation, but I'll say it anyway. The project of interpretively reconstructing the conflicts within our, our cultural tradition assumes a norm of democracy in a society of difference. Social difference, that is to say, can be a determinant of value rather than something covered over in the clarification of a single cultural tradition. What is emerging is a literary criticism that assumes the relevance generated by its different groups. In any event, the turn from an abstractly conceived literature to a history of multiple discourses and traditions has given literary studies a vital perspective on the history of the book. No longer assuming the natural character of the archive it studies, literary criticism turns toward the position of various discourses in society and toward the reproduction and transmission of the archive of cultural tradition. And because it regards traditions as multiple and as socially constructed, it does not regard the history of the book as an accident befalling its own canon. It is thus in principle committed to examine commodity markets, pricing strategies, binding, patterns of ephemerality and inheritance, readerships, library building, and other social determinations of cultural heritage. By the same token, it is in the position to say to the history of, of the book that, for example, allusion is a way of constructing the archive of value tradition and thus belongs to the province of the history of the book every bit as much as does reprinting or the recording of books in wills. Indeed, the history of literary study, like the history of the category of the literary to which it is related, is itself part of the history of the book because the attribution of meaning and value to texts 
represents institutional and social struggles over how cultural tradition will be defined and reproduced. Criticism, among other discourses of meaning and value, shapes not only what will be reprinted, anthologized, and taught, but also how people will read the resulting heritage. Doing the history of the book, therefore, is a kind of critical self-reflection for literary criticism. It is a way of analyzing the very struggles for public representation and cultural tradition in which literary criticism now understands itself to be engaged. Thank you. Thank you.